Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of CBS News. You may wonder why we spent four episodes on the founding meeting in Philadelphia in 1787. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, Senator Rand Paul quoted Montesquieu on the balance of powers during a debate over the president's assertion of emergency power. This week, Democratic presidential candidates floated the idea of expanding the number of seats on the Supreme Court and doing away with the Electoral College. These contemporary affairs directly relate to those issues bandied about in that hot summer in Philadelphia. Nostradamus got nothing on us. But the amazing predictive powers of the whistle-stop Ouija board tell only part of the story. Any time you're talking about or thinking about the presidency, you should return to the starting place. If you have the starting place in mind, you'll understand whether the current system is running smoothly along in those 230-year-old grooves or, in the alternative, throwing sparks as the system flirts with bouncing off and into the ravine. As seeking citizens with a few practical judgments and open minds, we should look not just at the structure of the system created in Philadelphia, but at the ideas behind that structure and the process that created it. The balance of power system might need tweaking as it exists today, but we'll only know where and how to trim if we acquaint ourselves with the root motivations and objectives of the founders and their durable balance of powers document. The presidency may have strayed far from the original conception, but when we look at the new form, is that form consistent with the original intent? And if not, is that a good thing or a bad thing? We can't answer every question here at Whistle Stop headquarters, but we can at least start the motor on this damn episode. Part four of this increasingly misnamed trilogy. So here we go. But first, a word from our sponsor. Our Whistle Stop today is December 20. 3rd, 1783, the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army sits before the seated president of the Confederation Congress in Annapolis, Maryland, preparing to hand over the commission assigned to him eight years earlier. The form of George Washington's exit from public life would assure his return to it. He voluntarily relinquished power and, in doing so, testified to the durability of Republican government. Washington believed that government power comes from the people. It does not rest in a single man, no matter how popular or powerful. Having been given power and grown in his use of it, the most powerful man in America, George Washington, returned the power back to its source. The ball held the night before in George Washington's honor testified to his popularity. He had been heralded that night as His Excellency in 13 toasts, accompanied by the discharge of 13 cannons. 200 or so swell folk in perfume and talcum joined the dinner, and after making the cutlery sing, it was time for dancing. The women lined up for a turn with Washington, who, according to Delegate James Tilton of Delaware, quote, danced in every set so that the ladies might have the pleasure of dancing with him or as it has since been handsomely expressed, get a touch of him. As a sign of how the new government wished to see the separation between public popularity and governing, the official dance steps the next day after the ball made it clear where the public hero stood in the official pecking order. These rules, written out in part by Thomas Jefferson, read as follows. When the General Washington rises to make his address... And also when he retires, he is to bow to Congress, which they are to return by uncovering without bowing. 
When the moment came for Washington at Annapolis to give up his commission, he said this, Having now finished the work assigned me, and his voice was shaking at times with emotion as he read from the paper that was written in his own hand and which he held now in his shaking hands. I retire from the great theater of action and take my leave of all the enjoyments of public life. Several participants reported that there were tears in the audience. Horses stamped at the door, awaiting their rider. Washington, after he had finished his remarks, now a private citizen, mounted the horse, and the crowd cheered his departure. Washington's resignation of his commission is one of the great mic-dropping moments in American history. The juxtaposition between his personal fame, the country's gratitude, and the ache to elevate him as seen all in that party the night before on the evening of December 22nd, and the subordinate position he took as a retiring member of the Republic on the 23rd of December, are a stark demonstration of the balance expected in that early Republic. Fame did not rule in the early Republic. The rules ruled. The people ruled. It was a Republic of the people, not of the famous. The American painter John Trumbull, who would immortalize the moment for a painting that hangs in the rotunda of the Capitol building along other great scenes of the American founding, like the signing of the Declaration of Independence, said this of Washington's give back, "'Tis a conduct so novel, so inconceivable to people who, far from giving up powers they possess, are willing to convulse the empire to acquire more." But perhaps even the greater moment of power abnegation for Washington happened in March of 1783, nine months before he would hand over his sword in Annapolis. Joseph Ellis, in his book His Excellency, calls this moment the last temptation of Washington. Officers under Washington's command hatched a conspiracy to threaten Congress to win the back pay that they had been promised from their service in the Revolution, but that the weak Congress under the Articles of Confederation could not provide. You'll remember that's because the Articles of Confederation did not allow the federal government to push states into repaying debts. They had to just kind of hope the states would do it for them. Washington, of course, agreed with his the grievances of his men, and, the, and he agreed with their judgment about the Articles of Confederation and its fragile ineptitude. But he violently disagreed with their bullying, dishonorable conduct, which amounted to threatening Congress that they would stage a coup and run the government to pay themselves, if nothing else. When Washington heard of the plan of mutiny, he surprised the men when they gathered to refine their plot. Gentlemen, he said to them, by an anonymous summons, an attempt has been made to convene you together. How inconsistent with the rules of propriety, how unmilitary, and how subversive of all order and discipline. He continued in his speech, drawing a direct link between his honor and reputation built over the life of his command and the goals of the revolution. Their coup spoiled what they'd been fighting for and besmirched his integrity, since he'd put his reputation behind the cause and gambled his virtue in support of it. He called on the men in the audience, as you respect the rights of humanity and as you regard the military and national character of America to express your utmost horror and detestation of the man who wishes, under any specious pretenses, to overturn the liberties of our country and who wickedly attempts to open the floodgates of civil discord and deluge our rising empire in blood. Midway through his oration, Washington put on his reading glasses. Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in the service of my country. Soldiers in the audience reportedly wept at this human moment. 
Washington could have corrected the weaknesses of the Confederation by joining his men and stepping in to assume control. What more noble cause than paying the soldiers who had fought in the revolution and whose wives now had been reduced to begging and whose children were starving? The question for Washington, as Richard Beeman puts it in his book, Plain Honest Men, The Making of the Constitution, was, should Washington remain loyal to his long-suffering troops or honor the rule of law? Well, he honored the rule of law. The ends did not justify the means. As head of the army, Washington not only refused to use his power and the power of the army for his aggrandizement or to bend the rules. He also took the moment to proselytize about the duties required in the new republic. The reasons for his behavior, writes Joseph Ellis, were so deeply buried in his character that they functioned like a biological condition requiring no further explanation. Imagine that, a president with such character that it is as natural as the functioning of a person's biology. The officers listening to Washington were moved by his performance and agreed to have him lobby Congress on their behalf, and they did away with their threats of mutiny. Successful rebel leaders usually become despots, not Washington. Thomas Jefferson, not always the greatest booster of General Washington, rooted the success of the entire American nation in the general's character that was on display in that moment. The moderation and virtue of a single character, meaning Washington, probably prevented this revolution from being closed, as most others have been, by a subversion of that liberty it was intended to establish. Washington's actions in Newburgh and later in Annapolis made him the most popular and well-known man in America, a national figure whose fame grew out of allegiance to the country's young and untested ideas. He elevated himself through restraint and stewardship of those notions. Compare this to today when voters applaud candidate impulses and will accept a candidate for the same office Washington held, who can simply rustle up no better answer from the covered for why they do what they do than simply, I just feel it. And, waiting for the applause to die down, these candidates feel no weight in the deficiency of their answers. The founders, in giving power to an office created out of the recognition that governments did occasionally need to speak for the people with a single voice, they anticipated tribal uh, tribal shoving and other forms of smallness. They knew that George Washington had special virtue. That made him a model for the single, single chief executive they decided should be a part of the new government. But it also meant because they believed humans were sinful, that they had to create a structure to prepare for mere mortals who, when faced with the kinds of tests that Washington faced in Annapolis and Newburgh, would have given in to other impulses. We'll talk about those constraints that they created to prepare for the day when there would be no Washington. How would this new president be elected? Why, the Electoral College, of course, a clear, simple process that makes intuitive sense, said no one, the delegate from nowhere. Instead, William Grayson, a former officer in the Continental Army and U.S. senator who participated in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, assessed that the Electoral College was rather founded on accident than any principle of government. It sure feels like patchwork when you peruse the Electoral College creation story. The portion of Article 2, Section 1 describing the Electoral College is longer and more detailed than any other single issue the Constitution addresses. So let's step back here now and see how the sausage was made. The debate over how to elect a new president vacillated between the idea of a popularly elected president whose method of selection would keep him close to the people and a counterweight to the Senate full of elitists chosen by state legislatures and a president who was elected by Congress, which would check 
the chief executive's despotic impulses, but which would also make that chief executive beholden to Congress. In the trend-setting Virginia plan that kicked off the four months of deliberation, Congress was the one that elected the chief executive. That opening bid appealed to most delegates. It did not sit well with Philadelphia delegate Governor Morris, the peg-legged ladies' man of considerable persuasive powers. According to Madison's notes, Morris spoke more than anyone else at the convention 173 times. Morris believed in an active and vigorous executive, the keystone in the great arch of empire. He had helped draft the New York Constitution in 1777, which was the, had the strongest executive of the 13 states and which served as a kind of model for the new federal office. Morris is the hero of Ray Raphael's book, Mr. President, How and Why the Founders Created a Chief Executive. Those who supported the legislative selection route for the presidency believed that legislators would know best how to choose someone to do the actual job of being the executive. You'll remember this was a time when expertise was in vogue, as was the notion that a leader should have some familiarity with the kind of decisions leaders might have to make and the habits of mind to make those decisions as best as humanly possible. An antique notion, of course. Morris worried the legislative role would make the executive a tool of the legislature, lacking independence necessary to protect liberties. This criticism, of course, had been anticipated. His rivals had suggested that the president would have a term long enough, seven years or 11 years or 15 years, to give a president time to wriggle out from any of the influence his initial selection might have left on him. Also, many of the other delegates supported allowing only a single term so that the chief executive would not have to grub for favor from the legislators in order to keep his keister in the warm Oval Office leather for another term. And aside, remember how I banged on about ambition last episode and talked about benign ambition and noble ambition is different from... Uh, the turn the rubble in, uh, turn the republic into rubble kind of ambition. Well, this is what uh, Governor Morris cited when he was arguing for allowing a second term to an executive that would be elected by the people. Limiting a president to a single term, he said, quote, may give a dangerous turn to one of the strongest passions in the human breast. The love of fame is the great spring to noble and illustrious actions. Shut the civil road to glory, and he may be compelled to seek it by the sword. Shut the civil road to glory is my favorite spiritual, but it's interesting. So, so basically Morris is taking the complete other side of the ambition question. You have to give a president a second term so that his ambition can gallop in the service of the country. That, by the way, is not a quote. That's just me riffing. Public liberty faced, quote, greater danger from legislative usurpations than from any other source, said Morris. So a Senate covering large territory like America would tend toward oligarchy, he believed, and only a president elected by the general population could act, quote, as a general guardian of national interests. Here's more from Morris. If the legislator elect, meaning elect the chief executive, it will be the work of intrigue, of cabal, and of faction. It will be like the election of a pope by a conclave of cardinals. The legislature will continually seek to aggrandize and perpetuate themselves and will seize those critical moments produced by war, invasion, or convulsion for that purpose. It is necessary then that the executive magistrate should be the guardian of the people, even of the lower classes, against legislative tyranny, against the great and the wealthy who in the course of things will necessarily compose the legislative body. 
what I find so fascinating about this is Morris is obsessed with the idea that the legislature is going to basically seize all the power and create fake wars to seize more power. You just get a sense of how strong the legislature was in the early conception of the American government and how thoroughly the notion that the legislature would be a rapacious, power-hungry monster, uh, which, of course, feels foreign to us today with a much more supine Congress, but also shows you that as much as they were worried about tyranny and monarchy and all that stuff, they were also worried very much that the legislature could on its own, not simply as a lickspittle to a powerful president, but on its own, trample liberty. Governors of New York, Massachusetts, and Connecticut had been chosen by popular vote, Governor Morris pointed out. But George Mason of Virginia argued that the people were not qualified to choose among candidates for president. It would be, he said, like referring the choice of colors to a blind man. At, at which point he was hounded into an apology on Twitter, his cable show taken from him, and he no longer had that choice seat by the window at the Sag Harbor dining establishment he always used to frequent. George Mason's anti-popular vote view rested on elitism, but also on geography. Some delegates believed, along with him, that people weren't smart enough, of course, to understand the issues and requirements of the job, but they also thought even if voters could be smart enough to vote wisely, they might not have the information. I mean, how would a presidential candidate in New York, or from New York, I should say, come to be known by the voters of Georgia? Remember, there was no idea that these men would actually campaign for the job. To do so, to campaign for the job, would show a lack of virtue. So knowledge would have had to have spread beforehand, not through the gaudy appeals of a campaign that we have now. Morris argued that the leading presidential candidates would necessarily be men of continental reputation, whose achievements for good or ill would have stamped a clear impression on the popular mind. Madison agreed, quote, the people generally could only know and vote for some citizen whose merits had rendered him an object of general attention and esteem. Again, this idea that, of course, the country, whether it was the country or the legislature picking the executive, would know of who these these people were because only the most experienced, only the most well-versed in the issues of the day would be even considered. They would have such a reputation for greatness, not popularity, but reputation for greatness across the country that you wouldn't have to worry about the fact that they might not know about them in Georgia if they were from New York or vice versa because they would be people of continental reputation. An expression you'll remember from James G. Blaine, the continental liar from the state of Maine, continental in that case meaning known throughout the land. James Wilson of Pennsylvania was also an advocate for the direct popular election. He, quote, in order to make the executive and legislature as independent as possible of each other, each body could claim that they had independent support from the people if they were both elected by uh, the popular vote. Neither could claim that because they were closer to the people, they had more authority. Wilson really wasn't a believer in the innate genius of the people. He, in fact, had been the target of a mob as a suspected royalist during the revolution. It literally came to his house to hunt him down. But he did believe that only a government with its roots in the governed could operate as best as possible. His vision is the closest to what we actually have today and the one he argued for uh, during the convention. Of course, it failed miserably during the voting where you have this – and we'll get to that in a moment why it failed. But his argument was for president and the legislature to be directly elected, both of them. He assumed, though, that each would operate independently with this public vote. He, he, he assumed the kind of split-ticket voting of the kind we had until the last few presidential elections. Voters would pick the members of Congress based on one set of independent values and pick their president based on another. 
When voters pick based on party alone, which is now the greatest predictor of how people are going to vote, the independence that Wilson's idea was based on is completely lost. And that's what's that, that's why we're all locked up today because there's no independence. People are voting based just on on which uh, color shirt you wear. As Joyce Appleby points out in her paper on the rise of partisanship, so little did the founders expect candidates for president to compete on the basis of ideology or a party that they conceived the vice president would be the runner-up to the presidential candidate, which you'd obviously never do if in, in today's world. The idea that, um, uh, you know, that Tim Kaine would be uh, Donald Trump's vice president, or I guess if, anyway, you get the point. Delegates didn't really rally behind this popular vote idea. Why give the mob direct control over the presidency? That would lead to monarchy. Richard Sherman of Connecticut spoke up and said, an independence of the executive from the Supreme Legislature was the very essence of tyranny if there was any such thing. His view being the president could claim popular election as a mandate for dictatorship and then just stomp around liberties all day long. The bigger problem, though, frankly, for popular sovereignty was the southern slave states. In working out how representatives in the legislature would be apportioned according to population, the framers reached the so-called three-fifths compromise. Five slaves would count as three persons in determining how many members of the House would represent a state. If slaves were not counted, southern states, of course, would be underrepresented in the national government. And the southern states were needed to ratify this new national government's rules, uh, also known as the Constitution. Though they were lovers of liberty, the framers in Philadelphia perpetuated an institution that denied liberty to black Americans. There were anti-slavery delegates, and the debate did at times over slavery shake the roof. Governor Morris, in fact, was one of the loudest speakers against what he called the nefarious institution. You should read his full comments about this nefarious institution, but here's a tiny little taste. Proceeds southwardly, and every step you take... Through the great regions of slaves presents a desert increasing with the increasing proportion of these wretched beings. Upon what principle is it that the slaves shall be computed in the representation? This is obviously happening. He's saying this in the course of the three-fifths compromise debate. Are they men? Then make them citizens and let them vote. Are they property? Why then is no other property included? The houses in this city of Philadelphia are worth more than all the wretched slaves who cover the rice swamps of South Carolina. The admission of slaves into the representation, when fairly explained, comes to this, that the inhabitant of Georgia and South Carolina who goes to the coast of Africa and in defiance of the most sacred laws of humanity tears away his fellow creatures from their dearest connections and damns them to the most cruel bondage. That person shall have more votes in a government instituted for the protection of the rights of mankind than the citizen of Pennsylvania or New Jersey, who views with a laudable horror so nefarious a practice. When people talk about being on the right side of history, Governor Morris seems to come to as pretty close to that as possible. However, the southern states were needed for ratification, which prompted the three-fifths compromise. But the three-fifths compromise wasn't going to work with the notion of a direct election of a president said Madison during the discussion in June. The right of suffrage was much more diffuse, which is to stay extensive in the northern than the southern states, and the latter could have no influence in the election on the score of Negroes. In other words, in a direct election, the North would outnumber the South, whose many slaves, more than a million at this point, could not vote. So southern states would not sign onto a constitution that deprived them of power in choosing the chief executive. 
which because once the chief executive was elected without the without Southern votes, he obviously wouldn't behave in a way that was consistent with their needs. So Madison wrote this. He, he Madison, based on this idea, concluded his remarks about slavery by arguing for the Electoral College. The substitution of electors obviated this difficulty and seemed on the whole to be liable to fewest objections. The difficulty being the representational challenges of slavery. In the debate over whether the Electoral College had its origins in slavery, Madison's statement and his later role in writing the rules of the Electoral College would give substantial support to that argument. So too would South Carolina's Charles Coatworth Pinckney, who warned the Committee on Detail, which which was um, created in order to iron out the language of the final document, he warned them this, if the committee shall fail to insert some security to the southern states against the emancipation of slaves, I will be bound by my duty to my state to vote against their report. So, because of slavery, direct election was not going to work. Let's recap. We have these options for the presidential election kicking around. The president can be elected by the legislature, by state legislatures or state executives, which is to say the governors, or by popular election and by this thing called the Electoral College. James Wilson was the first one to offer the Electoral College compromise. And remember, Wilson is the one who at first tries to do just a straight-up popular vote. And so here we pick up from Georgia delegate William Pierce's notes. Mr. Wilson proposed that the United States should be divided into districts, each of which should elect a certain number of persons who should have the appointment of the executive. This protected the idea that a chief executive uh, should not be beholden to the legislature but didn't completely hand over the process to the people. The nation would be split into regions in which uh, the voters would select electors. Those electors would be picked based on their superior knowledge and reputation in their communities, and that would lead them to make the right choice for the chief executive. The proposal in early June of the summer went nowhere, though, so they'd have to order a stronger pickaxe for their next attempt at solving this question of how in hell you pick a president. And aside, it's, it's not so easy in writing these episodes to figure out where the delegates stood on various questions related to the presidency because the debates ranged around all over the place. So they would debate, then they would agree to table a decision until later, but then they'd pick the decision right back up again after they'd said they were going to table it. In mid-July, Governor Morris stood up and said that everyone should stop debating the particulars of the length of term and election and instead, quote, take into one view all that relates to the establishment of the executive. He's saying take the broad view. Then once you know the broad view, you can have an understanding of the particulars. Well, this, of course, appeals to my heart, as those of you stout, hearty, whistle-stop listeners know out there, because it's what I'd like us to do now with the presidency. What do we want with a president, and what's realistic? And then let's set our expectations for the office from there. Here's how Richard Beeman writes about the presidential thought process during these months. In the absence of a strong consensus on any aspect of the presidency, the delegates had, perhaps unconsciously, settled on taking a series of straw votes on each of the issues in the hopes that some sort of consensus would emerge. So what happens then when you're reading through the debates is that there's all kinds of meandering votes with no clear resolution. James Wilson remembered that the delegates, quote, were perplexed with no part of this plan, meaning the Constitution, so much as with the mode of choosing the president. Meanwhile, rumors crackled outside the room where events took place that were so magnanimous that the room where everything happened would have qualified for the characterization applied to such important rooms by Lin-Manuel Miranda, the author of the Hamilton musical. 
Sometime in July, an anonymous pamphleteer in Fairfield, Connecticut, spread the rumor that the delegates were considering sending to England for the Duke of Osenberg, the second son of George III, to have him crowned king over this continent. The writer suggested that the framers had not found anyone among their lot capable of governing the new nation and therefore had to fulfill their little monarchic hearts by reaching back to the golden throne of yore. By August, the issue of selecting a president remained an unbaked loaf. John Rutledge of South Carolina had ants in his pants. He barked at at his colleagues about, quote, the tediousness of the proceedings and suggested if the delegates didn't quicken their pace, they'd be there till the end of the year. In the Committee of Detail, a smaller group of delegates hammered out the actual specific of the various decisions that had been made in the larger group and what they would look like on paper. But in these discussions, members kept undoing previously agreed-upon matters, in part to relitigate their point, but also to raise previously settled issues in the light of new powers that that had been given to one body or another. So again, in the Committee on Detail, popped up the proposition that the president would be elected by the legislature, which was, of course, the thing we started with under the Virginia plan. But then a turning point. Delegate John Dickinson, no relation because it's not the same name, interrupted and batted down the idea of appointing a president by Congress. Quote, powers which we have agreed to vest in the president were so many and so great that the people would never agree to such an office they didn't have a hand in selecting. So this idea of the legislature picking the president has transformed, not necessarily because people's views on that idea have changed, but because they vested a bunch of powers in the president, and that means... If he's picked by the by the not by the people, then you you mess with the balance of powers. So back to our friend Governor Morris. He's our champion of executive power. He asked the group to make another pass at this question of how to select a president. And so Madison, quote, took out a pen and paper and sketched out a mode of electing the president that might solve this problem of bringing the people into the process without bringing them in too much. And so Madison essentially went back to the idea of a presidential electors, which had been shot down previously for two main objections. One, too expensive. We got to have a big vote. Where, and then we pick the electors, and then they have a vote. It's very expensive. The other, the other objection to it was that it would potentially create a system where the electors would be too parochial. They'd pick just a favorite son, which they ultimately fixed, quote-unquote fixed, by not letting electors vote for their home state favorites with both of their votes in the one conception of it. According to Richard Beeman in Plain Honest Men, quote, this intervention by Dickinson and the subsequent responses by Morris and Madison probably constitute the most decisive moment in the creation of the American Electoral College. Decisive it may have been, but murkiness still reigned. The various permutations of the college were debated and debated again. To give you some sense of the fluidity of things, at an early stage when options seemed plentiful, delegates voted down by a margin of 8 to 2 Madison's proposal for the Electoral College, which would ultimately be the design of the Electoral College written into the final draft of the Constitution. Madison's proposal lost in the early bidding, though, because it emerged during the portion of the debate when they had decided there would be a college, but hadn't decided on how its results would be handled if no candidate won a majority of the Electoral College votes. Bickering clattered the windows because the framers anticipated most Electoral College votes would end up in Congress. So as they squinted at the weights and measures, they had to weigh whether having Senate elitists make the final call in a close electoral vote or House members, who were closer to the people, would produce a more balanced system. The reason they figured everything would end up in the Congress is they didn't think there would be just two political parties. They figured there'd be a bunch of people running for president and that no one would get a clear majority. People would get pluralities and that that would have to then be sorted out in the House or the Senate. If the Senate were to make the final call, George Mason said, quote, he would prefer the government of Prussia. 
By the end of the day, on September 5th, James McHenry of Maryland recorded just how bogged down the conversation had gotten. We're in September, by the way. Remember, we started way the hell at the beginning of really the end of spring. Here's he recorded how bogged down things had gotten. Quote, the great part of the day spent in desultory conversation on that part of the report respecting the mode of choosing the president. Adjourned without coming to a conclusion. In the end, the delegates kind of stumbled into a compromise in which the House would adjudicate any electoral college vote that did not result in a clear majority candidate, but where each state would have only one vote in that House tally, a provision that that pleased the smaller states. No one commenced jig dancing, though. They had agreed basically to pick the least bad option. As Ray Raphael puts it in Mr. President, quote, as Madison stated, the very best way to keep people at arm's length from their government was to create, quote, successive filtrations in the electoral process. And the jumble created by Governor Morris and the Committee of Eleven did precisely that. The Committee of Eleven was also known, by the way, as the Committee of Postponed Matters, the method of selecting, certainly classified, as a constantly postponed matter. In, in Federalist 68, Alexander Hamilton explains how the Electoral College, <laughs> I don't think he pronounced it that way, would work in practice or was supposed to work. The process of election affords a moral certainty that the office of president will never fall to the lot of any man who is not in an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications, talents for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity may alone suffice to elevate a man to the first honors in a single state, but it will require other talents and a different kind of merit to establish him in the esteem and confidence of the whole union, or of so considerable a portion of it as would be necessary to make him a successful candidate for the distinguished office of President of the United States." It will not be too strong to say that there will be a constant probability of seeing the station filled by characters preeminent for ability and virtue. And this will be thought no inconsiderable recommendation to the Constitution by those who are able to estimate the share which the executive in every government must necessarily have in its good or ill administration. Now, if you're running or cleaning the house when you just listen to that last sentence, you don't have to go back and rewind it. It took me like many readings, but it's here's the paraphrase. What he's essentially arguing is that the unique selection quality of the Electoral College was a point in favor for the Constitution. Remember, he's writing the Federalists to argue for the ratification of the Constitution. So he's arguing the Electoral College is like a boon. It's a big it's the it's the shiny rims on the wheels of this vehicle. What's it going to take to put you in a new constitution today? And so he's arguing that the Electoral College is going to be uniquely designed to pick presidents with preeminent ability and virtue. And so he's saying, if you like executive power and you're on for that, then boy, do we have this great system that's going to set up really nicely these executives in this shiny new constitution. Well, of course, it didn't work that way in practice. The Electoral College was not a sorting mechanism for wisdom. And we think of this as a modern breakdown in the Electoral College. But by 1800, two parties had emerged in America, which meant they started selecting electors based on party. States were allowed to determine their method of selecting electors. Whichever majority party then held the power in that state, they picked the electors who picked the right man. So their choice no longer turned on an independent evaluation of the best person for the job, but on the jersey that the candidate wore. Not long after this, states started to switch over to having a winner-take-all system where the winner of the popular vote won all the electors. 
So by 1836, South Carolina remained the only state in the union where the legislature made the choice. So essentially, it was this hybrid of what they had tried to avoid. So this wasn't really a surprise to some that it would turn out this way. During the debate over electors, Hugh Williamson of North Carolina expressed skepticism that the electors would summon great wisdom and apply it to their presidential choices. He feared, along with others, that the electors would, quote, not be the most respectable citizens and would be, quote, liable to undue influence. It's true. Today, as Madison hoped that the Electoral College filters public opinion, the debate today, though, is whether it filters it too much. The Electoral College, having lost its original function and Hamilton's dream of allowing wise, independent electors to actually pick the president. Now they are just the function of the popular vote with that vestige of the numerical proportionment that we all know so much about. After delegates selected on, uh, settled, I should say, on the Electoral College in early September, the convention then shifted a bunch of powers, important powers, from the Senate to the president. Treaty-making powers and the power to appoint were now the president's task, with the Senate offering, quote-unquote, advice and consent, a phrase irritatingly vague enough to provide generations of debate. These powers were given to the president to balance out the powers the legislature had, uh, and because the president was now independent as a result of this electoral college. So again, another way in which the shifting of one thing leads to a shift of others in this endless attempt to try to get proper balance. The president gained a veto veto power over Congress as well, and that was born out of the Virginia plans, quote unquote, what was called the Council of Revision, which was a presidential and judicial mix that would modify the product of any legislation. So it's kind of a cool idea. Legislation comes out of the Congress because the Congress is actually making legislation in this uh, version of America. And then the Council of Revision, which would be the executive plus the judicial, would kind of would mull it over, do, do some edits, and so forth. But that never happened. So what did happen was a presidential veto. Now, in its first conception, that veto could not be overthrown, which was an amazing echo of what had so irritated the colonists when George III had been kicking around. He had used these vetoes and there was no recourse. But in the end, the framers compromised, created a veto that could then be overridden by the legislature. Now, this override is fun and fascinating because it was it was a moment in which the founders did not rely on the virtue of the executive although they thought they flirted with the idea at one point supporters of the absolute veto had defended it by saying a president would never use it if they thought a substantial majority of congress supported the underlying provision that he was going to veto founders were wise enough to know that mere mortals would not deny a powerful tool to themselves if that power sat available on the shelf Lord Acton is, is worth quoting here. Everybody likes to get as much power as circumstances allow, and nobody will vote for a self-denying ordinance. So a president with the power to veto would not deny himself the ability to veto something if he wanted it just because um, it happened to be popular in Congress. Donald Trump, of course, is doing that right now. When the presidency, with its new powers of appointment and veto and treaty-making, emerged from the smaller committee, the framers who favored an executive council flipped out. There's another instance of going back to the first questions again. May, uh, George Mason and James Madison and, and Benjamin Franklin all said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've put too much power in the presidency. That would be very dangerous. So they renewed their push for a council of state or a privy council. And, and this is a little bit different than a co-presidency. Basically, the council of state or the privy council would act as a check on presidential power. So it wouldn't be the direct agents of that power, but it would somehow check that power. Eh, they didn't get anywhere. 
But the question of how to check presidential power, that certainly was important and no greater check on the president than impeachment. The subject of how a president might be removed from office had been brought up in mid-July. But at that time, the fuzziness reigned over how the presidential selection would work and how long he might serve. So that made it impossible to decide whether or not the executive should be removed by special ejection or simply by not being reelected. Because at one point, uh, Morris said, well, just have the president serve for two years, and if he doesn't do very well, he'll be voted out of office. At the end of this process, the Founding Fathers wrote impeachment, originally a Roman political institution, into the Constitution for the purpose of removing an official who had, as Benjamin Franklin put it, rendered himself obnoxious. (laughs) Without impeachment, Franklin argued, citizens could only rely on assassination, which would leave the political official, quote, not only deprived of his life, but of the opportunity of vindicating his character. So it would be best, Franklin concluded, quote, to provide the Constitution for the regular punishment of the executive when his misconduct should deserve it and for his honorable acquittal when he should be justly accused. So the idea was the, the bar was far lower. As Yanni Applebaum has pointed out in The Atlantic, the the bar was far lower for impeachment. You think there's something wrong, you adjudicate it, and maybe it's a chance to – it's almost like a vote of no confidence. You know, if he survives impeachment, then he's been exonerated. Well, we won't go into the uh, present, (laughs) but that's that's the way it was conceived at the time. The debate then turned on to the question of exactly what would get a president uh, kicked out. Madison suggested incapacity, negligence, or perfidy. Hamilton wrote in the Federalist Papers that the grounds for impeachment should be those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. They are of a nature which may, with peculiar propriety, be denominated political as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. So in the end, so that's an important point, political versus criminal, and of course that leaves it quite vague. The grounds that they fixed on in the end would be treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, how those things would be defined exactly would be left up to future lawmakers, which would leave it confusing and and basically up to the political moment. The final matter in writing of the Constitution then remained the actual writing of the Constitution. This task fell to our friend Governor Morris. He received the golden quill pen because he wrote clean, direct prose, which is a lesson to you kids out there. Always, You'll always have a job if you can write. Some of the woodpile that emerged from the Committee on Postponed Matters could not be deciphered. But Morris thinned it. He chopped down 23 articles down to seven, for example, without losing the meaning. And he completed his work in four days. Madison said Morris's selection also made sense because of his, quote unquote, too rare equanimity. A candid surrender of his opinions when the lights of discussion satisfied him that they had been hastily formed, meaning his original opinions. And a readiness to aid in making the best measures in which he had been overruled. What a prince. Who, by the way, in public life is ever praised for this quality of intellectual honesty? It was once so important that America's founding document fell to a man with these qualities. Today, this attribute remains vestigial, like an appendix or a TV repairman or a person who has an unexpressed thought. But do we buy that Morris so resigned himself to ideas he once objected to? On impeachment, certainly this was true. 
He once thought it was a bad idea when it was when a president was being elected by the legislature. He thought you couldn't be elected by the legislature and canned by the same legislature. That would totally break down the whole separation of powers. But once the president was elected through this electoral college system, he said, OK, fine, there can be an impeachment process. But on the September 12th draft, emerging from his table, splotched with ink and pounce of the cuttlefish, look it up. There emerged for the first time an insertion into Article One that delineated the powers given to Congress. Morris changed the vesting clause for Congress by adding an emphasis. The two words, herein granted, which suggested that the powers of Congress were those granted only in the Constitution. The vesting clause for executive powers... And you'll remember Morris spent the whole summer trying to beef up executive powers like an Iowa linebacker. The executive power vesting language was free of such language. So with no herein granted in the president's vesting clause, it suggested that the president's powers were more expansive than those specifically enumerated powers given to Congress. I've read that Morris did this at George Mason's request, with Mason saying he wouldn't vote for the final document if, it, if Congress weren't limited in this way. In other words, Congress is limited to the powers herein granted in the document. The president's powers are more expansive. But anyway, if that's true, it didn't help because Mason voted against the thing after all. This vesting language has often been cited in debates over which branch holds a particular power and whether the president or Congress is overstepping the powers granted the office. And we can't go into these debates, but... Because, I mean, you're talking that like 230 years of American history. But um, let me read from a passage with respect to the presidency from a book uh, called The Myth of the American Presidency by David Nichols, which just gets at the two different ways of reading the vesting clause of the presidency as it emerges in the Constitution. There, and this is from The Myth of the Modern Presidency. There are two possible reasons for such a distinction, meaning a distinction between the powers vested in Congress and the powers vested in the presidency. First, it might be argued that the executive power is by nature limited. To execute means to carry out the laws. In this view, the power of the executive is expressly derived from the laws and therefore inherently subject to the limits of the law. In other words, you don't need to write herein granted because there are all, there's already fence posts around what an executive can do. But, writes Nichols, there is another possible interpretation. The executive power is not limited because its very nature, it cannot be subject to specific limitations. The executive is to execute the laws in particular circumstances, and the diversity of those circumstances is potentially unlimited. The reason for establishing an independent executive in the first place was to have a branch of government capable of exercising the discretion necessary for effective execution of the laws. Remember, people kept talking about energy in the executive. Well, you can't have energy if an executive is hamstrung because that energy necessarily exists to meet unpredictable circumstances. It is this, of course, more expansive notion of the executive that Hamilton latched onto with his talons. His argument then was that the president was only limited in the places where the Constitution expressly limited him. Boy, that's expansive. Seems like a monarch-weary set of founders wouldn't have wanted to throw open the door that wide for the president, but that's up for you to debate over dinner. Even after the Committee on Style had submitted its final version on September 12th, delegates continued to fiddle with the dials on the equalizer. Hugh Williamson wanted to reconsider the clause requiring three-fourths of each house to override a presidential veto. He wanted the threshold lowered to two-thirds. 
The higher number, he argued, quote, puts too much power in the presidency. Okay, Hugh, one of his fellow delegates might have said, but four weeks ago, a delegate with the identical name, blood type, body type, and clothing put forward a motion to change from two-thirds to three-quarters. Well, indeed, that self-same Williamson had completely reversed himself here at the last 11th hour, which again is another sign of how delicately the framers were calibrating the share of power between the legislative and the executive. At the signing ceremony on September 17th, Benjamin Franklin prepared remarks, but frail health compelled him to hand them to Pennsylvania's James Wilson, who read them to the room. Franklin said this, I confess that there are several parts of this Constitution which I do not at present approve, but I'm not sure I shall never approve them. For having lived long, I've experienced many instances of being obliged by better information or fuller consideration to change opinions even on important subjects, which I once thought right, but found to be otherwise. It is therefore that the older I grow, the more apt I am to doubt my judgment and to pay more respect to the judgment of others. Most men, indeed, as well as most sects in religion, think themselves in possession of all truth, and that whatever others differ from them, it is so far error. I agree to this Constitution with all its faults, if they are such. For when you assemble a number of men to have at the advantage of their joint wisdom, you inevitably assemble with those men all the prejudices, their passions, their errors of opinion, their local interests, and their selfish views. From such an assembly can a perfect production be expected? If it therefore astonishes me, sir, to find this system approaching so near to perfection as it does, and I think it will astonish our enemies who are waiting with confidence to hear that our councils are confounded like those of the builders of Babel, and that our states are on the point of separation, only to meet hereafter for the purpose of cutting one another's throats. Thus I consent, sir, to this Constitution because I expect no better, and because I am not sure that it is not the best. The opinions I have of its errors I sacrifice to the public good. As Clinton Rossiter puts it, at the end of the Constitutional Convention, the country had started the process of moving, quote, from the edge of disintegration to the edge of consolidation. Jill Lepore, in these truths, argues that the convention, which arranged itself around checks and balances, should therefore be thought of as a check on the revolution, a check on the revolution's radicalism in favor of liberty over government. The Constitution would bring things back into balance. The Oxford History of the American People puts it this way. It is easy enough for a determined minority to pull down a government, but exceedingly difficult to reconstruct, to reestablish law and order on new foundations. But that's what they did in Philadelphia. As imperfect as that final document was, with the sin embedded in it that Governor Morris had pointed out, it nevertheless has endured. British Prime Minister William Gladson observed, the American Constitution is, so far as I can see, the most wonderful work ever struck off at a given time, by the brain and purpose of man. Historian Gil Troy puts it this way, the Federalists relied on the traditional deferential politics, bolstered by the Constitution's checks and balances, to protect the people from themselves, mixing democratic consent and elite rule, faith in the people and fear of the mob. They institutionalized paradox. Madison reflected on how hard it was to accomplish all of this. Each of these objects was pregnant with difficulties, he explained when talking about the various things they had to work through. The whole of them together formed a task more difficult than can be well conceived by those who were not concerned in the execution of it. Adding to these considerations the natural diversity of human opinions on all new and complicated subjects, it is impossible to consider the degree of concord which ultimately prevailed as less than a miracle. 
Ben Franklin looked over the entire process and took note of the sun on George Washington's chair. I have often looked at that behind the president without being able to tell whether it was a sun that was rising or setting. But now I know that it is a rising sun. We started with George Washington, and I'll end this pleasing but incomplete series of Whistle Stop podcasts with George Washington as well. That's the way things went in Philadelphia at the end as well, too. On the final day, there was one last provision that remained to be debated, whether representation in the House should be based on 40,000 people, 30,000 people, the larger number creating fewer people's representatives. The general, who had been almost entirely silent during the proceedings of the previous four months, spoke up. He warned that under the larger 40,000-person threshold, the, quote, smallness of the proportion of representatives was an insufficient security for the rights and interests of the people. Washington's voice carried the day. There would be more representation. 39 delegates scratched their signature. Each of the 12 attending state delegations voted for the document. But not all members within those delegations supported it. Remember, Rhode Island opposed the convention, so they sent no delegation. Several of the 55 total attendees left before the signing ceremony, and three that stayed did not sign it. George Washington signed first. It wasn't the last time he would leave his mark on the American system. The presidency that document created would be formed by more than the words in the document. As Joseph Ellis points out, the Constitution, quote, devoted more space to the rules for electing or removing the president than to delineating the powers of the office itself. That imbalance of focus left ambiguities. George Washington's example to help the framers get over those ambiguities. Washington's model at the front of the room in Independence Hall helped shape the office and allowed for it to be a little left undone. He'd fill in the office and fill it out. What magic did Washington have that inspired this trust? Well, he had special qualities identified by historian Jack Rakov, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Revolutionaries. He suggests that Washington conjured this faith in his abilities in the bosom of his countrymen. Rakov writes, when admirers wrote to him as they did before the great stroke at Trenton, this is during the Revolutionary War, they almost seemed to understand the role they expected him to play better than he did himself, almost, except that the knack of fostering that expectation in others was one of the traits that enabled Washington to pursue the destiny he sought to attain in himself. What a neat trick to foster expectation in others that they put on you that you then have to meet to achieve future greatness. Washington fostered it in himself and in the office of the presidency. Outside the hall, outside Independence Hall, the public saluted Washington too. A writer writer in the Pennsylvania packet believed that, quote, a Washington surely will never stoop to tarnish the luster of his former actions by having an agency in anything capable of reflecting dishonor on himself or his countrymen. With Washington, then, we have a first taste of the hero worship that would wrap around the presidency. That is to say, it's not just human nature for leaders to have ambition and seek power, as the founders had discussed for months, but it's also human nature for followers to want a hero, to seek the control that comes from a simple story of one man's success and the hope that comes from one man or woman creating action that will make the future turn out okay. The framers, so attuned to the risks of human nature, were also are a little bit susceptible to it. But let's not leave the impression that the mere hero worship led to this adulation of Washington. It wasn't just his strapping shoulders. He had demonstrated qualities at Newbury and at resigning his commission that the founders wanted at the center of public life. That's why we started with those episodes. James Wilson argued that America's, quote, Republican manners 
made it unthinkable that an American president would transform himself into a monarch. What greater example of Republican manners than Washington, who had given up his personal power for the republic? Later, Washington would be described in this colorful way. His character, in short, is a tissue of virtues. And it wasn't just the founders, of course, who recognized these attributes. Upon learning of Washington's resignation from public life, King George III reportedly told the American-born artist Benjamin West, if Washington does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. It is this, though, that is an essential paradox of the presidency, the balance-obsessed framers, keen to circumscribe the presidency from becoming too large, swooned a little at its first occupant. Pierce Butler, Major Butler, delegate who represented South Carolina, and had been a British officer just three years before the first shot of the Revolutionary War, and then he switched sides and fought the Redcoats. He, at the convention, peered into the future and pinpointed exactly this dilemma around George Washington. He said of his colleagues at the convention, quote, many of the members cast their eyes towards General Washington and shaped their ideas and powers to be given to the president by their opinions of Washington's virtue. So that the man who by his patriotism and virtue contributed largely to the emancipation of his country may be the innocent means of its being when he is laid low oppressed. How clever Pierce Butler was. We should invite him to the next Al Fresco dinner. Let's read that last line again. So that the man who by his patriotism and virtue contributed largely to the emancipation of his country may be the innocent means of its being when he is laid low oppressed. Washington's virtues created an office where virtue acted as the grout connecting the tiles of state, but in so doing created an office vulnerable if someone with something darker than virtue filled in those in-between spaces. After the final day of work, the delegates took their powdered wigs and wooden teeth and positioned themselves at the tables of the city tavern on 2nd Street near Walnut. The group, Washington wrote in his diary, dined together and took cordial leave of each other. In his cases, the future first president packed a four-volume copy of Don Quixote, which he had purchased on that last day of the Constitutional Convention for 22 shillings, six pence, in Pennsylvania currency. Whether Washington's dream and the dream of his colleagues would turn out to be folly, like Quixote's, remained to be determined. But the general did share with the book's author and its main character the view that beautiful dreams were worth fighting for on their own even if you didn't know whether they were going to come true. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We're done for the moment with our series on the creation of the presidency. It makes me a little sad, actually, because it's been a thorough adventure. But we have donuts to make. Thanks to all of you out there who've taken this ride along with us. Whistle Stop will be back in a few weeks with another chapter in the office that sprung to life 230 years ago after Washington's summer in Philadelphia. The Whistle Stop producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of audio. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher and in-house historian Brian Rosenwald is one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Elizabeth Hinson is the master manager of the research and the patient spirit in the Google document. And thanks to Alan Pang of CBS Radio, who helps make this episode and every other episode happen on the CBS end. Thanks to all of you out there. And thanks for all of your lovely reviews of Whistle Stop in the iTunes store. For those who haven't left a review, oh, go ahead. Also, tell your friends and neighbors about our work. It helps us spread the word, and it's tremendously affirming. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm John Dickerson of CBS News. I'll be back in a few weeks. Thank you.